Hi, Gil. Welcome back. We're back. We are so back. It's so good to be back. It's great to be here. It's great. And you're still in the, you're still in the shed. I'm still in the you're shed. Still... Yeah, I'm in the uh, epicenter of media. Coming in from the shed in the forest. Cutting the edge broadcasting from the shed. Yes, I am. You are in the shed and I have moved all the way to Manhattan, New York. Flex. I am live streaming this straight to the UN, which is down the road. So I think I made the right move. Oh my goodness, you are. You're in the shadow of the mothership. That and rats. <laughs> Hi, I'm Luisa Matinga. And I'm Gail Galley. And this is An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World, the podcast for anyone who cares about building a better world but doesn't know where to start. We are on a mission to get everyone on board to achieve the global goals. Now, there are 17 goals that the world promised to deliver by 2030. And although we are nearly halfway to the deadline, we are not halfway to achieving them. And so let's get to work on ending poverty, protecting our forests and providing clean energy for everyone. The big stuff. All the big stuff. In this episode, we ask what it actually means when we say we need to consume responsibly. We're joined by a very big brain, one of the world's most influential climate scientists, Johan Rockström. I would argue that today, the ultimate definition of justice must be to have stable environmental conditions on Earth, to have a planet that continues to be able to support humanity. And we also speak to the changemaker Malati Wayson, who inspired a global movement when she made real-world change at a very young age. Because we started from such a pure place of intention and authenticity, it was easy for people to gravitate towards the idea. And that's the beauty of the young generation today. We don't see the complexities. Instead of challenges, we see opportunities. How has it been on the consumption level, moving from uh, South Africa, Johannesburg to New York? I'd love to hear what, uh, what New York feels like to you on a consumption and a waste level. I think it would be very easy to say that America, consumption to no end. Um, but I think we're all kind of in a heavy consumption sphere in, in a way. It's just that here, it's like almost consumption first and then whatever the other thing is later. Like, you know, it's like organic, but then it's all in plastic or something like that, you know, or how there's a thousand versions of everything. Like you just have an aisle for chips. It's just like the entire aisle where in South Africa, it would be literally be, the aisle would be all junk food. All of the junk food fits into one aisle. And then the next aisle is something totally different. Whereas here, it's like, no, 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 we're just doing crisps here. And then it's just jelly beans. And then it's just, it's, it's, it's quite, it's quite insane. And then when you get to the till, it's like, would you like a plastic bag? Because, you know, you should have brought your own because we're also saving the world. Yeah, yeah. So we're still living in, you know, a thousand ironies of consumption, but the consumption is intense here. Also, the, the thing I've become really conscious of is what pushes people to consume. And you're right, it is global. We, I mean, the UK is just as bad. But with the rise of sophisticated advertising and algorithms and social media, I mean, uh. it's not only just that you're pushed to consume literally thousands of times a day, little ways you don't notice. Also, it's so easy to fulfill it, isn't it? Before you know it, you're like, oh, oh shit, I've accidentally so just easy. bought another stereo. Oh, you know? I cannot tell you how Amazon it is to have Amazon. Yeah. Oh, to be on Amazon. Oh, to be on that Prime. To see that button say, can be delivered tomorrow. Or today. We have it today. Or today. Yeah. The magic of today. So it just... It's also becoming much easier to consume. 
so there's this terrible, I think, this terrible conflation of of availability and then fulfillability. That's not a word, but you know what I mean. And then before you know it, it's done. And I think we we need to kind of stop sleepwalking down that avenue where we're going to be pushed all sorts of stuff that we don't need and have just a bit more consciousness about what it is we are choosing to use. Mm. And that's what this goal is all about, responsible consumption. Like, what are we consuming? How are we consuming it? And how does that fit within, you know, the earth system boundaries that we all are bound by? I, I, I believe myself to be a, a materialist in the old sense of the word, in that I believe in buying really good stuff. That's my thing. Buy once, buy really good. And I think that's better th than buying stuff that you know it's going to break tomorrow. I think we kind of like demonize consumption to the point where it's like, it's all or nothing. So people just go, oh, well, you know, I can't stop consuming, so I can't do anything. It's like, no, there's ways to consume. And I think, I think we got to start telling narratives where it's like, no, there's a way you can buy clothes, buy really good clothes. That's actually a good thing because chances are you won't need another pair of jeans for five years rather than having to buy a pair of jeans every single season. Yeah. I've just got into thrifting. Thrifting is amazing. What does that even mean? What does thrifting mean? Thr uh, thrift. What is a thrifting? Thrift store. Going to a thrift store. Yeah. Uh, secondhand clothing. Is is that not a word in England? Oh, oh, I have never heard the verb to thrift. Yes, I've gotten into thrifting. It sounds Shakespearean. Shall we thrift on Tuesday? Is that you flirting with me there? That that is not I flirting with you. That's me flirting with the world of green. <laughs> And there are some people who are really interesting who are very like hyper-focused about how they consume and they, they'll show you how much packaging or plastics they have in a year and it, it'll fit in a little Ziploc bag. Oh my. They'll go to refill type places instead of buying packaged products. They'll go get their coffee where they can just scoop it into little brown paper bags. Oh wow. You know, um, so it's possible. It's hard, but you know, we've got to start doing the hard stuff because we've got to think long term. And we need to start thinking about what that life actually looks like. And I think that's an exciting world. Yeah. And we're, we're smart enough to solve these problems. I was at the talk with um, Plastic Free, the company. There are so many products that are not plastic. There are sneakers that biodegrade. <laughs> Literally made a sneaker that just goes right back into the earth, put them in the ground, and they're, they're back into nature. I genuinely believe people want to do good. And if they knew the options, if they had better options, if they were given the options uh, more readily, people would make better decisions. No, that is the thing. You're so right. Who wants to fuck it up, right? No one wants to no one. degrade the planet no to the one. point that there's nothing left. There's no more clean water. There's no more ultimately air to breathe. Who doesn't want to have a, like, a thriving natural world? But any child understands you take too much away, you've got nothing left. Mm. There's this brilliant day that the UN help um, publish every year and it's called Overshoot Day. And it's the day at which we've used up all our resources for that year. And it's getting earlier and earlier. I think this year it was somewhere, I think it was like mid-July. Oh my gosh. So, okay, well, you've just used up all the fresh water, all the wood, all the carbon budget that you should have used for a sustainable future. And it's getting earlier and earlier because we know what the boundaries are. And actually, I'm very, very excited. The guest we've got on today is the inventor of the planetary boundaries. I mean, he's the ultimate scientist in this area. He's called Johan Rockström. I mean, I call him Jan Rockstar because he's so good at explaining this stuff clearly. But he invented this system called the planetary boundaries. And it just shows the system within which we are working and the boundaries within which we need to stay if we are to have a safe and sustainable future. So the first thing we asked him was, 
Could you explain to us what the planetary boundaries actually are? So the planetary boundary framework sets charges to um, answer two uh, grand scientific questions. And question one is, what are the big biophysical or environmental processes or systems that regulates the stability of the whole planet? And second question is, can we quantify scientifically boundaries within which we are safe in the sense that we have a high chance of keeping the planet in a livable state with life support systems and resilience that can continue to support humanity, beyond which we put uh, the stability of the whole planet at risk. So the boundaries provides us with a safe operating space for human development. While efforts to contain air pollution, in particular greenhouse emissions, gain pace, experts are sounding an alarm over yet another and more threatening form of pollution. Scientists say that a cocktail of chemical pollution which pervades the planet has now reached a level that threatens the stability of the global ecosystem. 50 years back, we didn't need planetary boundaries because we were not posing risks at the planetary scale. Now we are, and we uh, tend to... Uh, focus all our attention on only one of those planetary boundaries, namely climate, and we have agreed on one planetary boundary, namely the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit in the Paris Climate Agreement. That's excellent, apart from the fact that we're not delivering on it, but at least we have it. But the planetary boundary science shows we need to have the, the equivalent for all the other systems that regulate the stability of the planet. Biodiversity, fresh water, nitrogen, phosphorus, land, air pollutants, the stratospheric ozone layer, ocean stability, and novel entities or chemicals. So it's, a, it's simply setting the full integrated agenda for a, a stable planet for humanity. And not to add any more complexity onto that, because obviously that is already quite comprehensive. But if I can introduce now the Sustainable Development Goals, you know, otherwise known as the Global Goals, Give us an insight into how they intersect with the planetary boundaries and what's your thinking at the moment about the chance of them being holistically achieved? Well, to begin with, um, I think it's worth reminding ourselves that the Sustainable Development Goals is the first time in, 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 in human history that we have an integrated framework, a guide for aspirational, desirable outcomes for human development in terms of prosperity, in terms of equity, which also integrates planetary sustainability. So, you know, we had the Millennium Development Goals before that, but they were focused only on, on reducing hunger, reducing poverty, to get kids to school, to uh, uh, avoid uh, mass loss of, of people due to starvation and waterborne diseases and uh, uh, malaria and uh, lifting people out of misery. And that was incredibly important, continues to be incredibly important. And then in comes the Sustainable Development Goals that suddenly suggest that, oh my God, that's not enough. We now need to also decarbonize the world economy. We have to get off fossil fuels. We have to protect all nature. We have to have stable oceans. We have to secure the hydrological cycle. And, and uh, we have been um, struggling with a very deep misconception that um, the world can only afford to deal with one thing at a time. That is, of course, a complete misnomer because everything is so intertwined that uh, if we destabilize 
the climate system or if we continue ruining biodiversity or if we continue changing the composition of ecosystems and thereby rainfall and thereby food insecurity, it hits immediately back on these primary urgent matters of, of uh, malnutrition and, uh, and starvation and, and disease patterns. So with the Sustainable Development Goals, we now have for the first time a fully integrated people-planet agenda. So just stay on the idea of the complexity of, of um, the issues and how integrated they all are. I mean, how possible is it to really integrate all of these systems, natural and industrial and social? Because my brain just explodes. Well, unfortunately, my answer will just uh, force you to continue struggling uphill, actually, to be honest, because... Because <laughs> you're simply not as clever as he is. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we, simply, we simply need to, to, need to embrace, embrace complexity. Yeah. Just, just, just to kind of try to simplify things slightly, it is definitely so that everything is interconnected with everything else, and that's, of course, very complex and not very helpful. But, but it is also so that you cannot say that, therefore... Let's, uh, let's put aside the planetary boundaries and, and focus only on sustainable development goals because that is also not possible because what the planetary boundaries does is to scientifically define the biophysical safe space on Earth to keep the planet stable. That's all it does. Mm. It, it addresses nothing on equity, nothing on poverty, nothing on dignity, nothing on security, nothing on the human dimensions. It's, it's an Earth system assessment. What does it take to keep the planet in, in the state that can support us humans, period? And then you load the sustainable development goals on top of that. And what are the sustainable development goals? Well, that's an agreement. It's a contract between 195 countries in the General Assembly, all nations in the world, saying that we agree to eradicate poverty, to eradicate hunger, to have dignified life for all people in the world. If you really want to succeed on the human development parameters, you m must invest in the climate, water, biodiversity, oceans, planetary boundaries. I've now uh, increasingly tried to remind everyone that I would argue that today, the ultimate definition of justice is a stable planet. I mean, justice is, of course, about a fair sharing of resources, about breaking the unacceptable skewed distribution of, uh, of wealth across the world. But, but if, when you think of it, the ultimate definition of justice must be to have stable environmental conditions on Earth, to have a planet that continues to be able to support humanity. So in that sense, I think we've come to a point where there is no longer a contradiction between, let's call them the environmental goals and the SDGs and the human goals and the SDGs. That these are increasingly, I would argue, well understood to be intimately interconnected and interdependent. So we are loosely doing these episodes per goal. And the one that we've, you, we could have slotted you into an, any number of the episodes, right? But actually this is going to focus on responsible consumption because there's, there's two C's that have risen up with me as I'm listening to you talk just today. And those two C's are consumerism and consumption and capitalism. Can we really carry on with a system that is capitalism, which is one predicated on markets, people investing in things which require billions of people to consume them? And I, I just don't know these days where I used to believe we could 
have a capitalist system that was safe and just and, and could operate within the planetary boundaries. But increasingly, I'm just not sure. Well, I'm not sure if it's helpful, but I think it's the wrong question. I think it's not a question of whether we can have a future that delivers on the sustainable development goals within planetary boundaries, within a capitalist system, or if we need to have some other system. I think uh, the question is rather, how do we make the economy deliver human well-being within planetary boundaries? That's the question. Capitalism can be a very effective way of rapidly raising investment capital for innovation and transitions, uh, but it can also be a massive threat for rebound effects and, and, and move us in the wrong direction. So what I think is the most important, actually, is to recognize that we need uh, regulatory frameworks. We need to have a science-guided economic fencing of, of whatever we do in the space of, of uh, consumption and production systems. And of course, it will come as no surprise to you that I will say that the number one decision to take is to set the planetary boundaries. Just think of it. If we would all agree, if the world economy would agree that we're not allowed to operate the economy outside of the planetary boundaries, that we need to stay within that playing field, then you can have different economic performances, but you cannot escape the fact that we have to stay within the boundaries. And, and I think that's the challenge we're facing, not whether or not we can have capitalism. It's about how can we have a fair redistribution. Can you do that within a capitalist system? I think you can, but it requires regulations. It requires policies. It requires taxing uh, the wealthy. It requires redistribution and dividend systems. And how much uh, pressure do you think, um, or incentive rather, there is on industry to offer um, better options for quote-unquote, the consumer, because a lot of the time the pressure is put on the consumer to, to change when the options aren't even there for change. For instance, we look at like products like the oat milk industry, which has really taken off because the option now is there. Or are we still stuck in the same systems that just go, profit is winning, therefore we continue where we're going? It's a very mixed picture. Mm. So first, on, um, on the positive side, I mean, there's no doubt that uh, businesses across the world, across sectors, from the food industry to transport and, uh, and textiles, have turned a corner, seeing the writing on the wall, recognizing that competitiveness, um, attractiveness on the market, and, and the ability to attract talent to your company requires a serious, serious engagement in sustainability. So that, I think, is... Uh, is, is a very clear direction, which leads to exactly what you're pointing at, that we start seeing sustainable, healthy solutions being available at, at competitive prices. And you can take everything from electric mobility to uh, alternatives to dairy, for example. So, so yes, that, that is uh, happening. But is this occurring broadly enough to be able to scale globally and be basically the solution towards a transition back within planetary boundaries? The answer is no. It's, it's far from enough. Hey. We are not yet seeing that this is happening across particularly the sectors that are most central to a clean energy future, meaning the oil and gas and coal industry. And then secondly, we have to very rapidly broaden the agenda to... Uh, 
material flows and sustainable consumption to rare earth metals and all microplastics. All the side effects of, of unsustainable consumption is about overuse of materials. And, mm. and we need to close the cycles on materials and we have to reduce our footprint on materials. And that goes beyond carbon and we're not seeing good enough progress there. So, so it's a mixed picture. What I think business needs today is policy support. I mean, much more brave policies than today. For example, putting end dates on the internal combustion engine, uh, drawing mm. red lines on, on the use of, of plastic for short-term packaging of food. Uh, so I think, I think politicians are a bit too nervous about being at the frontier of brave policymaking. If we're really serious about the sustainable development goals, now is the time to close the loops. But in all of this, how positive are you in our ability to, to change things in time? How do you stay positive in this fight to go, we can still do it? And, um, uh, and you, know, you obviously know the numbers of what can do actually is. Well, to begin with, I'm very certain that we've reached a point where the question is no longer whether we will be decarbonizing the world economy. The question is, will we be too late? So, so we are on, a, on the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel-driven era for the world economy. I would even argue that we're in the beginning of the end of destroying biodiversity and intact nature. It's, it's, it's just a question, will we be able to slow down and move into a harmonious, reconnected world economy to planet Earth in time? There's definitely some light still in the tunnel. We still have the opportunity to at least avoid unmanageable outcomes. But the window is rapidly closing, so it's very serious. So in short, yes, yes, but hurry up. Exactly. What I really appreciate about this rock star is that he has this brilliant way of giving us the hard, man, things are tough, things aren't looking good facts, and also the well, this is what's totally possible. This is absolutely possible. This is what's actually happening. Here are the numbers. So it's, it's, he's, such a, he's such a great piece of reality is what he is. He's, he's, like, he's like, he's not trying to be on e any other side but the truth. Yeah. We were really thrilled when we first saw him publish what was called The Wedding Cake, which is the global goals split into three tiers. Um, so he had the earth goals on the bottom, which I guess is his planetary boundaries. Then the human goals sat on top and then the finance goals went right through the middle. We thought if someone like Johan Rockström is doing that, then we must be onto a good thing. That's a yummy cake. But I, what I liked about what he was saying to us there was saying we are turning the tide on emissions, mm. but are we going to get there fast enough? Mm -hmm. you know, it's a brilliant piece of parenting, isn't it? Well done. We've done this team, but now we really need to yes. speed up. You know, he doesn't deliver the doom. He's like, yep, we're on the way. But if you could hurry up, that would be nice. That is actually a great way of looking at it. It's the parent who actually balances the information, who goes, you know, well done. Yes, you have your pants on. Now we said yes. to get to school, right? Yes, exactly. That's the, the point of the pants was school, not just the <laughs> pants. Not just the pants. And, and I think because he is so steady and clear and honest at all times, uh. it's really heartening to hear him say, we probably have turned the tide on carbon emissions. We probably have stopped destroying the natural world thoughtlessly. But that thing about hurrying up is key. And I think it's also really key to link that to personal 
action, you know, how you live your life. Because, if, you know, if we, Richard Curtis, the co-founder of Project Everyone, he always says, you know, a, a billion people doing a small thing will make a tremendous difference. And yeah. I think that's a nice way also to start thinking about our next guest who started to make her difference when she was so young, right? She was uh, 12 years old. So Malati Wiesen is a 21-year-old changemaker from Bali, Indonesia. When she was only 12, she and her sister noticed on the news that another country in the world had banned plastic bags. And because they were surfers and, you know, were on the beach all the time, they knew that Bali had a problem with plastic bags. So they thought, okay, maybe Bali can change plastic bags. So they founded this thing called Bye Bye Plastic Bags. So sweet. <laughs> Tell it was a 12 and a 10-year-old. Bye-bye. It's so great. Uh, a An NGO which was driven by young people to just end that, end the plastic bag. I heard someone talk about plastic a few years back in such an interesting fashion, but he was saying, where we went wrong with plastic is, is its use, not its creation, because it is a miracle uh -huh. material, right? Lasts forever, really light, safe, can transport water, can uh -huh. transport medicine and food. Where we went wrong was not treating it like gold, uh -huh. right? Because it's so precious. It comes from oil. That's a lot of people don't realize that. So you're burning fossil fuel to make the stuff. But then use it for what it is. It lasts forever, so use it forever. Whereas we've gone to this extraordinary place where we use it barely even once, like food wrapping or plastic bottles, bin, you know, wrapping on a pizza, chuck. In fact, in terms of quality, it's right at the bottom. Yeah. Anything that's got plastic in it, we, we, we see it as the opposite of gold. There's gold at the top and there's plastic at the bottom. And so we treat it in that way where it's like it's the first thing out of our house. It is the cheapest version of everything. It is the least respected material that we have. And uh, that's so, if we had treated it like gold, I guess we would have the products that were meant to last as long as it as, as the product actually lasts, which is that it's a forever product. So let's have piping that lasts forever. Yeah, cool. Let's put that in that department, yeah. but not have toys that last forever in a landfill. Or in the ocean, which, as you remember, is one of the other goals, life below water. Mm -hmm. We need to clean up our ocean, which brings me back to Malati. So let's listen to how she and her sister helped to get plastic bags banned in Bali. It really started here on Bali and the love of nature that we had growing up here. Nature was everywhere, but also plastic pollution was everywhere. And my sister and I came home one day at ages 10 and 12 years old, just thinking, enough. We wanted our island home to be plastic bag free. 40 countries at the time had already banned single-use plastic bags. So in our simple way of thinking, we thought, why can we not? Come on, Bali. Come on, Indonesia. We can do it too. When we published our petition online, the first 24 hours, we had about 6,000 signatures from all over the world, people on the island and globally agreeing that the island had to become plastic bag free. And that's where my sister and I were like, okay, there's no point in turning back now. This is something worth working towards. Little did we have any idea, like we had no clue what spider web we were entering ourselves into. We thought, for sure, we're going to get this ban on single-use plastic bags by the time summer was over and before the school year started. So is my maths right? You worked away for six years to get that ban from the two of you on a sofa, and now the ban's happened six years. Yeah, the ban finally came into place in 2019. But also what's important to mention here is that we spent six years, but people were already before us campaigning. It's, it was nothing new. 
you know, it is nice to hear the sister story, but my sister and I and the group of Bye Bye Plastic Bags focus purely on changing people's mindset and using the medium of storytelling and of, you know, being young people convincing everyone else that this was an important thing. That was our strength and that was our skill. But there were so many other like-minded organizations that spent time drafting manifestos and drafting the regulation rewrites and spending time coordinating with what that regulation would actually look like. So it opened my eyes personally to just how long it takes for change to actually happen and that frustration that it doesn't happen sooner. I mean, this is one single-use plastic item we're talking about. We haven't even touched plastic bottles, plastic wrappers. It goes on and on and on. So this is where I felt the frustration of change not happening enough, fast enough for the first time. But looking back on it, why do you think, because now you know much more, don't you? You know much more about how the international system works. You know the kind of what you're up against. But as you describe it there, you were just two kids trying to make your nature's playground better. Why do you think it worked at that point? I mean, I think it's also just maybe looking back, the ability to not see the complexities. If I have to be 100% honest, I, I don't know if I would go for it at 22. That's why I'm so grateful and looking back, proud of that 12-year-old and 10-year-old that were brave enough to take that first step. Because we started from such a pure place of intention and authenticity, it was easy for people to gravitate towards the idea. And that's the beauty of the young generation today. We don't see the complexities. Instead of challenges, we see opportunities. And that's really where the bigger passion of helping as many young people get access to tools and access to skills, programs that I wish I had when I started my change-making journey and that I'm now doing through the new project of Utopia. So tell me a bit about that. Tell me how that is set up and how that's working. Yeah, so over the years with Bye Bye Plastic Bags, we would spend more time in other students' classrooms than in our own classroom. And what we would always get, uh, you know, after sharing the story of Bye Bye Plastic Bags and the change that we were achieving on the island, the same question would always come up. It didn't matter whether we were in New York or Tokyo or in the Maluku Islands. Students would line up refusing to go back to math class or English class because they all had this one question. How do we get started? How do we build a team? How do we get better at our public speaking? And on and on and on those questions would come. And that's where Utopia comes in. Today, Utopia is an online learning platform that hosts over 100 free changemaker programs that are created by young people who have already done something, have a track record of change or their own project. Um, of course, they are from all over the world. We represent about 50 countries ages 12 to 25, and they shared their skills that they learned on the front lines. So that's who you're learning from, real life young change makers, because we want to show that this is a real life way of living. So through this peer-to-peer masterclass or workshop or mentorship, as many young people from all corners of the world can find their change making style and start creating change. That's so cool. And as you say, so needed. When we speak to young activists, uh, one of the things that always comes up as their challenge is funding. You know, there's no job spec for a youth activist, nor is there a salary band. Who supports your work and how are we going to get that platform to grow? Yeah, this is a great question. And also where one where it always, you know, checks in with my privilege because I've been incredibly lucky. Yes, I've worked hard, but also very lucky that those platforms and doors have opened to me that I'm actually able to 
you know, say that I'm a full-time change maker and say that I've been able to turn a passion into a career, which isn't the case, unfortunately, for many, but I want that to be normalized. I want, you know, people to ask, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And for kids to feel like they can actually say, I want to be a change maker. That should just be as normal as a doctor or a normal as a teacher or normal as whichever other profession. This is a full-time job. I love that. Yes, let's add it to the careers list. Exactly. Change maker. Yeah. We have mini grants, for example, that addresses that funding challenge where young change makers can apply not through such an intense uh, grant pro uh, process, because that's also something that I feel is a very big misconception where grants who are trying to reach young change makers, but then need, for example, all this paperwork that just doesn't exist because you're it's a social initiative, not a foundation. It's not a business because it's an idea. So Utopia works around and making it a little bit more uh, informal, but also approachable for the youth movement to get access to funding. We've created a program as well for CEOs and for executives who ask the same question that the kids in the classroom were asking. Mlati, where do I get started on the change-making journey? How do we position sustainability? How do we make sure that we're avoiding youth washing, the new greenwashing, right? So this program that Utopia has created is an 18-month commitment that we look for within companies to go through a five-step method that is led by young facilitators, kind of the reverse mentorship where leaders in high-level positions can learn what the priorities are of Gen Z. And this program comes with the price tag that then fuels all the other programs to be free and accessible to anybody that creates an account on our learning platform. Love that. So that's very useful, I think, for people listening so that they can come along and have a look whether they're business leaders or change leaders. That's fantastic. And do you, do you run that thing? Like, are you in effect the CEO or do you have a, a structure that runs that for you? Uh, so we are, uh, co I have a co-founding team um, of actually all young people who are younger than me, which is also always the goal. I'm getting older by the day. So <laughs> I'm inviting as many young people in leadership roles. You, you have so a long way to go. I worry not. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But I do think a holiday on a beach with a book might be nice at some point. So well, you please know, take that. I love it when I'm in a room and I'm the oldest young person there. What I love about it is it's kind of casually reinventing the traditional hierarchical patriarchal kind of top-down leadership model of not just businesses, but organizations, right? It's a, it's a beautiful, circular, peer-driven, bottom-up approach. I love it. Um, but let me just end with what single thing is giving you the most hope right now for the future? I think it's this community that I feel alive. And, you know, we really have been able to create a community and a and a movement of joy in the space of change. There are so many people every single day who wake up and say, I'm going to make the world around me a little bit better today. So feeling that community, feeling that connectedness is what keeps me hopeful today. Well, you can hear she's not 12 anymore. She definitely sounds wiser than I was at 21. That's nine years of frontline campaigning which is really impressive. I mean, like her sense of the idea of community, the idea of you're not doing anything alone. That's the most important thing, because even when they started this, they, you know, thank God for their 12-year-old uh, naivety. But they also realized that there were others who were already on the trail. And I think a lot of the time we, when we want to get involved in the, in the world of 
making a difference, we think, oh, I'm starting from scratch. And it's like, no, chances are you can just join something. Chances are you can join a movement that somebody's already done so much work on and they need your youth, your vigor, your, your angle, your proximity to make the next difference. Yeah, totally. I think also we were talking, chatting about this in the office the other day about the difference between an activist and activism. Because being an activist is pretty, is pretty special, right? So she's clearly been an activist her whole life. But for a lot of people, being a, an activist, they, they feel daunted by that. But we can all do a bit of activism. So I think when it comes back mm-hmm. to consuming, every way, when it comes back to consuming in general, every choice you make is a choice of activism, potentially. You know, choose the shoes that can go back in the ground rather than the plastic ones. Yeah. Just be asked to go and take your own bottle and get it refilled. That's a little act of activism. And if we're all doing little acts of activism, then we will shift the needle much faster than if we sit back and go, oh, I'm not an activist. You know, I'm awkward. I'm English. I can't, can't even yes. ask for the bill in a restaurant. <laughs> you know, but we yeah. can all do little bits of activism in our own way. And then yeah. we can be led by people like Malati and, and their organizations to even greater heights. That is such a brilliant thought. Um, the little choices matter. Activism is in your little choices because you, your whole life is defined by little choices. So, you know, can you buy something that's better packaged? Can you buy less? Can you, you know, have a conversation with somebody to help them in their understanding of why one choice is better than the other? It all counts as activism. You don't have to be the person on a soapbox with a website and a, a thousand people behind you. I, and I'm just thinking in this, I don't know about you, in, in this... Um... In this part of the world, the rise of oat milk has been incredible. Like there's a bit of almond yeah. milk, there's a bit of soy milk, and then suddenly oat milk came along and it was just the same. And now, I mean, in our office full of millennials, can't move for oat milk in the fridge, right? Because everybody has shifted wholesale. <laughs> Why would you not? Tick, tick, tick. We were having a Christmas party. My favorite round in our Christmas quiz is always name that cheese for obvious reasons. And one of our new starters who's younger, uh, more like Malati's age, she said, oh, let's have one of the, let's have um." Name that milk substitute. <laughs> That's like, woo, you know how to party. But my point is how quickly you can shift things if you give the right choices, the right information. And at a global scale, that's huge. Name that milk substitute is a brilliant, brilliant game. It will be involved in my birthday parties as I move past the age of tequila shots. We go now to alternative malts. <laughs> name that milk substitute. Name that vegan cheese. I mean, there's so many variations. Isn't being sustainable fun? No, but okay. Don't make it cheesy. <laughs> it's time to wrap everything up that we've learned today and think about how can we consume more responsibly. So are you ready for an idiot's guide to saving the world in 30 seconds? Oh, so ready. Okay. Three, two, one. Start the clock. We have to stay within the planetary boundaries. We do. Uh, but we have moved into an era where we are reducing our carbon. We just need to move faster. Oh, very true. And we definitely got to start buying single-use plastic. That does not fit in. Yeah, that's so 90s. And actually, you don't have to be an activist to do some activism. Everything you do counts. Yes, you're joining existing movements also totally matters. I'm just not a new one. And have that game of name that milk substitute because that's nothing. <laughs> nothing says I love you like a round of name that milk. That's all we have time oh. for today. <laughs> but if you want to find out more, go to globalgoals.org and click on global goal number 12, where you'll find a whole load more great tips on how you can get involved in responsible consumption. 
I've been your co-host, Loisa Matingat. And I've been Gail Galley. Thanks for listening. See you next time. An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World is an Audi production made in collaboration with Project Everyone. Producers are Yolaine Goffin, Ellie Winter-Taylor, and Eli Block. The executive producer is Ellie DiMartino. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, share on your socials, and leave a review. It helps other people find us. And the more people find us, the more people are saving the world. Mm-hmm.